Buongiorno everybody and welcome. This is Identity Unlocked and I'm your host, Vittorio Bertocci. Identity Unlocked is the podcast that discusses identity specifications and trends from a developer perspective. Identity Unlocked is powered by Auth0. This season is sponsored by the OpenID Foundation. In this episode, we focus on the work of the EKYC and Identity Assurance Working Group in the OpenID Foundation. Today, we're chatting with Mark Hain, Director at Consider Consulting and one of the chairs of the EKYC and Identity Assurance Working Group. Welcome, Mark. Thank you, Vittorio. It's great to be here and to have this opportunity to represent the working group. Thanks for joining me today. And as it's tradition, let's start with how you ended up working in identity. Okay, I'll try and keep this as brief as possible. It's been quite a journey, as you can imagine. One constant, I would say, has been that I've worked in financial services, more or less, throughout my career, with a couple of diversions along the way. I started with a big bank more years ago than I can possibly believe now. I was focused on desktop support and networks and progressed there into network security, intrusion detection, scaling web applications for a stockbroking app, which saw me have the experience of uh, some of the challenges relating to the stock market boom of 2002. Application troubleshooting and deep packet analysis activities going on around you know, the you know, issues with apps and interesting attacks coming in from the internet in the early 2000s. Also got involved deeply in various access control for uh, staff applications using Kerberos, SAML, TACAX Plus, and you know protocols like that. All sorts of ancient technologies that developers today, I think, have long forgotten. I then moved into a team with another of the banks in the UK focusing on innovation. And it was a, an unusual little team, but we were given the opportunity to, with myself and one colleague, focus on innovation and security. And in that particular organization, we identified that customer identity was sorely lacking attention and really had room for lots of improvement in a way that would result in real business benefit for that bank. So that was our focus and really my entry point into the kind of customer identity challenges. Off the back of that engagement, the opportunity to learn about the very early days of open banking in the UK eventually resulted in me becoming one of the senior security architects at Open Banking UK, where I was first exposed to the OpenID Foundation properly, got involved in the development of the Financial Grade API, as it is now known. And ultimately, after a little while, also engaged in some of the challenges of you know sharing data via APIs with third parties in an Open Banking and PSD2-related regulatory environment. More recently, I've been continuing doing architecture engagements for a number of organizations. One is a a big European bank with challenges of a similar nature to identify their customers, improve their user journeys. I've done a lot of work on mobile apps where the mobile app interacts with the server side using OpenID Connect. And most recently, um, at the start of 2020, I was uh, very pleased to be invited to co-chair the EKYC and Identity Assurance Working Group. So there you go. 
Fantastic. And that brings us to today. It is quite a ride. Yes, indeed. Thanks, Mark, for uh, describing uh, your uh, trajectory all the way here. So that's a perfect segue for getting into the main topic today. I would start by first expanding the acronym and perhaps exploring a bit uh, what's the charter of this working group. Sure. So the name of the working group actually was a topic of hot debate when I first uh, joined the working group. And there was much debate about whether we should be focusing on know your customer, so electronic KYC, or identity assurance. And we came down on the combined EKYC and identity assurance because it's largely the same process in different industries. In financial industry, there is a focus on know your customer, and that's driven by things like fraud, anti-money laundering and sanctions legislation. And in other sectors, it's more commonly known as identity assurance. It's effectively the more generic name. In practice, like what is identity assurance? What is this for and why does it need a working group working on it? Well, largely it's, you know, certainly historically, it's been the process of establishing the identity of somebody you're interacting with in a very reliable fashion. And, you know, often historically that was done, you know, in the context of a bank by somebody turning up in a physical branch with their passport or their driving license or whatever identity documents and going through a process with a member of staff to effectively identify themselves and then allow them to access the services that were provided. But today, you know, in the times of COVID and the accelerated digital transformation that's occurring partly because of that, we need to find ways to do that online, essentially. I see. So what the working group is aiming at is to project online the equivalent of in-person proofing and similar yeah. so that people can consume that kind of high confidence authentication of entities, but also in the context of online. Yeah. That's a very, very important thing to do. I think there's one thing I would add as well. It's what we're doing is we're providing the tools to enable it to be done online in a standardized fashion. There are plenty of services out there today where you can do these processes, but they're generally vendor-led and proprietary at the moment. And, you know, ultimately that results in additional time to implement and complexity and, you know, all of the challenges associated with a proprietary solution, actually vendor lock-in at times as well. So, you know, ultimately, we want to make it quicker, easier, cheaper to be able to integrate these services. Right. And by doing a standard, you'll also be able to finally interoperate yes, yes. so that you don't have to, like, you just need to know that a particular entity supports the standard and then that uh, gives you some guarantee that you'll be able to just work with them out of the box instead of having to discover their particular dialect. Precisely. So I think as far as the working group charter is concerned, really, we've got a list of things. We have a charter on the website, which, you know, obviously everybody can go and have a read of. But, you know, the potted summary of that is that our aim is to deliver a technology solution that communicates verified claims and information about how those claims were verified. So the explicit attestation of the verification status. So it's really metadata about claims. I see. On top of the claims that you actually get information about how you obtained that knowledge to begin with. Yeah, so a 
actually I would say it's how those claims were established, when they were established, what sort of rules were used in the establishment of those claims, and what sort of evidence was involved. So, you know, it might say that the process was done in person using a driving licence, or it was done online with a certain specific process and other sets of evidence documents like, you know, a passport or a selfie or whatever, right? Selfie-based verification sounds something very much in line with a zeitgeist today. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it is live with a number of uh, providers right now. I can think of a UK bank that has you present your passport and then present a selfie. And that's part of it is checking that you're a real-life person because it's all very well having a passport. You could have just picked up in the street, though. Of course. And uh, the way you ask you to also hold uh, a newspaper of today. <laughs> yeah, we want to make sure that the passport matches the guy that's talking in the selfie, right? Yeah, well, the for the time being, uh, while deep fakes are still uh, expensive from the yeah, competition yeah. point of view, we uh, can get away with it. But in the future, it's going to be an interesting ride. But yeah. uh, you, you mentioned the UK, like uh, a UK process. I guess that. Uh, Working on visa must be in really a lot of work for harmonizing different uh, legislative frameworks, uh, different capabilities. Like uh, you must be working with uh, a lot of different countries and a lot of different verticals. Uh, yeah, can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, so the working group itself is a very international affair. The co-chairs are from the US, UK, myself, Germany and Japan. So that's a pretty good start. And we have representation from quite a number of other places as well. A couple of other European countries, Australia springs to mind. I can't think of another one off the top of my head. I think also it's worth pointing out there's a couple of people from industries outside of finance as well. So it's not just about the uh, the international differences. It's also about industry differences in different verticals. So we've got members of the working group from the mobile network operators We've got members from healthcare and software vendors as well. So, you know, technology companies are represented too. That makes a lot of sense. And why was Visa established in the context of the OpenID Foundation? Like, is it a natural home for it? Or uh, were other places considered when the effort was established? So I think it's clear that OpenID has... A couple of things which really make it a pretty natural home for solving the challenges that we face. One is that it's very widely adopted and well-tested. I think it's also clear that it's naturally good. It's a very clear claims-based method for delivering information from one party to another on behalf of an end user. And that fits quite well with the, the use cases that we are trying to solve um, so just you know, referring back to the, the working group charter, we do have stuff in there about how we're wanting to represent verified claims. And claims is important because that's obviously a key component of OpenID Connect itself. And I think I would also add that OpenID also has solved a lot of the basic plumbing that we need for communicating sensitive information from a provider to a relying party. We've also... Uh, in recent years, OpenID has worked hard with various partners to take what was started 10 or so years ago and make it suitable for much more uh, sensitive data. So the work that Torsten was talking about in your last episode 
on the financial grade API is all about protecting sensitive data in the context of an ID exchange. And one of the things that we're really aware of in the context of EKYC and identity assurances that we're often going to be exchanging sensitive data between the provider and the relying party. So, you know, although we're not going to mandate the financial grade API as a kind of a prerequisite for an EKYC and IDA solution, we strongly encourage it for cases where there is sensitive data being exchanged. Of course, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. And uh, it's great that you are uh, highlighting the fact that for us it's obvious, but it might not be obvious for everyone in this space, which is uh, that all the specs that we talk about are designed to be composable. So you take care of uh, the format of the information being exchanged. And what we discuss with Torsten is uh, about how those things are exchanged on the wire, the kind of like guarantees that can be deployed in the mechanics of making uh, the voice exchanges. And uh, I think it's great that they are uh, described separately because uh, those two are two different functions. But as you say, they make complete sense together. They do for a lot of use cases. But we did also want to give implementers the option to choose whether to implement FAPI or not, because there could be use cases where the EKYC and IDA spec makes sense for an implementer, but they don't have really sensitive information being exchanged. So it would, I think, be an excessive overhead for those implementers to have to implement because that's what the spec says. Yeah, it's also from the point of view of uh, actual implementation, like the two things are different. Like one is the plumbing and the other is uh, the kind of information you got to expect and how to validate it, which even in the implementation, those two can be different concerns. Yeah, so of course. Yeah. I think it makes sense that they are not bundled, but they are composable. A lot of our EKYC specification is focused on the schema of the request and response messages, you know, the bodies of the request and response, whereas a lot of the financial grade API stuff is about how those requests and responses are protected from various risks, right? So you're quite right. It is really a separate concern. That makes sense. So you mentioned implementers. So what is the uh, level of adoption that this initiative is enjoying at this point? Okay, so it's interesting you ask that because I've just been collecting together the results of a question that we put out to the working group, which is, you know, what's the adoption level? There are two technology providers that we're aware of uh, in the market that already have the identity assurance spec implemented as part of their OpenID provider software. So that's great. There are also a few real live production systems making money for people in Germany. You know, this spec originated from the donation of work that was done at yes.com. And they have a number of production implementations themselves where they use it to communicate attributes that were originating from some of the banks in Germany to some other parties who wish to consume those attributes. Very nice. So this thing is happening. Yeah, yeah, it's real, I think, is the thing to point out at this stage, right? Um, I think there's also a number of projects underway that are looking at our spec as a really interesting candidate. I know for sure that there's work in Japan we have a relationship in place now with the Ministry of uh, Economy, Trade and Industry in Japan. And there's also a couple of projects going on in the UK looking at the spec as a really strong candidate for handling identity assurance in relation to a number of different use cases. 
Fantastic. This is great work. So if we double click a bit and we go on the a bit more on the deliverables. So what specifications do you have as part of this and uh, what do you define in practice on those uh, specifications? Okay, so there are two specification documents that are kind of being developed by the working group at the moment. The main one and the one that's very much more developed is called the OpenID Connect for Identity Assurance. And that one's coming up for, well, we're planning implementers draft three of that one. And really it's primary content is the definition of request and response schemas for verified claims. So it's a JSON schema, essentially, for a blob of JSON containing a lot of claims about identity assurance. And I can go into that a little bit more. So there's effectively two subsections under verified claims. One is about verification and the other is about the claims themselves. So that's saying that, you know, these are the verified claims and this is how they were verified. Does that make some sense? I see. So basically you define a format that a client can use for requesting a very specific set of claims and a very specific collection of mechanisms that are acceptable for obtaining and verifying those claims. Yes, we're using something that's uh, already in OpenID Connect Core, which is the claims parameter on the request, which allows a relying party to specify exactly which claims they want back. So this isn't scope-based, where you would get back a predefined set of claims. This is a claims parameter, which allows you to define which claims you want and whether you want to receive them via the ID token or the user info endpoint, or a combination of both. Yeah, it would be interesting to also consider placing stuff in the access token, but uh, I am biased because uh, I am uh, personally leading the charge on uh, defining how to use a JWT format for access tokens, which is something that everyone does on the planet, but uh, there was no spec until now that tells you how to do it and so hard to interpret. And uh, in a lot of scenarios, uh, the access token is uh, used uh, as a first-party as in, like, the access token is the only thing that your backend rece- receives. And so, although traditionally people say, ah, let's not place identity information in the access token, in reality, the only alternative is to send the ID token, which is something that we never want to do to APIs. But sorry, I didn't want to do uh... We can debate that point if you like. I would add OAuth versus OpenID as a, a discussion point to that and introspection, but we should take that offline, I think. Yeah, yeah, there is a lot of work in there. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. You and I should work on that one, separately. <laughs> I think just back to the structure of the messages and the request and the response side of things, you know, the claims parameter, we're really keen on that. Sorry, I should add, you, sh- you can do EKYC and IDA using scopes, but we're kind of strongly discouraging it because at the end of the day we want the relying party to only get what it needs and from you know a a data protection perspective that's really powerful the relying party doesn't need to worry about justifying why it's got data that it didn't need you know in in europe certainly under gdpr there needs to be a pretty clear justification why somebody's processing data about an individual and if they didn't need it in the first place then that's a problem right Absolutely. Also, like scopes in general, easily misunderstood. They're typically, like they are best kept for uh, delegated uh, authorization. And here, instead, it's more of a 
declarative thing, and given that the claims uh, claim, actually the claims parameter gives you the chance to specify directly the info you want, no reason to use uh, anything else. There is a benefit from the provider side as well, I think, which is that it allows them to offer a service which is flexible for relying parties. So they don't need to have predefined scopes or sets of claims that are returned. They don't actually need to know what the use cases are for the data. They provide a set of arguably X attributes that are available from this service. And the relying party can use it for whatever business purpose they need it for. Contracts and payments permitting, right? It absolutely makes sense. And one thing that I really love of these, which is typical of any work that the Torsten does, uh, so yeah, I can clearly see his contribution. Yeah, his hand in this. Exactly. Uh, the TXN claim, like the fact that there is a claim that can keep track of a transaction and uh, actually give you an audit trail. Do you want to talk a bit about it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's a TXN claim in there, which is you know one of the, the many optional claims that can be requested. And really, that's intended to give that trail back from the eventual consumer of the response back to the provider and potentially inside the provider links to the processes that were underpinning that identity and how it was established. I think it also points to another really important claim that we've got in the set, and that is the trust framework. One of the things about identity assurance is that it needs to be done in the context of legal terms, usually. You can't rely on information that's provided by a technical solution if there isn't an underlying legal framework to build upon. And so we've got a claim in there called trust framework, and effectively that's a link back to the policies that underpin the identity attributes that are being provided. And that'll contain things like the definition of what is meant by in-person proofing or you know, how a passport or a driving license was actually validated in the context of this provider. So that gives that link from the tools, which is you know the stuff that we're building here, the way of communicating that data, back to the rules and processes that are run by the provider to establish that identity. So do you expect uh, those to point to uh, something defined by other bodies, like, for example, NIST and similar? Actually, maybe not directly. I think what will more likely happen is that the provider itself will have a set of policies defined, which in turn may point back to NIST or UK good practice guides or whatever the equivalent are, you know, the legal documents that define the background to all of this. But I think there will be an implementation-specific trust framework, probably. But I think we're yet to see quite how that all emerges. And and I'm sure it'll be highly variable for, for different implementations. So do you foresee that the client will uh, somehow out of band uh, acquire the details of uh, what the provider can do, like how like a, a particular entity does a verification and similar so that then they know what to ask? Or are you guys thinking of uh, publishing metadata to advertise those capabilities? What's the current thinking there? The th- current thinking is to have an out of band arrangement. I think, you know, underpinning most implementations, I fully expect there to be contracts for starters. You know, this is going to be a contract service a lot of the time. 
those contracts, I think, will in turn point to all sorts of other legal documents. The closest analogy in the technical space that I can think of is actually that of a PKI. You know, we have the implementation of a PKI, which deals with all the technical workings of how certificates are, are created and exchanged. But underpinning every you know, viable PKI is a policy document. And I feel that it's going to be very, very similar in a lot of regards to that. All right, that's fantastic. This is a really important work, very impactful. So if you were to issue a call to action to developers and to the community at large, what would that be? Yeah, interesting. There's a, probably a couple of things that I would ask. Ultimately, we're trying to provide a robust and practical and standardized way to share information about how identity data is exchanged, especially the assured identity data. So awareness is the first thing. Share that we exist with your peers. Share that we exist with architects, business people that you interact with. There's not going to be much use of this if people don't know about it. And when you do get involved or hear of projects that are about exchanging assured identity data, then make sure that there is at least some awareness of the work of the OpenID Foundation in this space. And as a prompt, you know, there's actually a wide range of use cases here. You know, we've talked about it in context of financial services more than anything else. And that's where some of the regulatory push is coming from. But actually, there's a huge number, I think, of use cases that fit into this that don't immediately jump out of the, the title of the working group and the, the names of the claims that we're using. So at a very high level, I'm going to chuck some at you. There's a new staff member coming on board. What's the first thing every company does? They verify the staff member's identity. So if we can streamline that process, you know, you've already got assured identity somewhere. Wouldn't it be nice to just present it in a mobile app context to your new employer? Buying alcohol. They need to know how old you are. And at the moment, the processes in that space are weak, I would say. Again, give the kids an app they can use to evidence that they are of age to drink alcohol, whether it's 18 or 21, whichever country you're in. Account recovery is another interesting journey, which really could be streamlined by you know, a privacy-preserving way of, of assuring some sort of identity data. Another one that really springs to mind, you know, I, uh, I volunteer at my local swimming club as a coach and as part of that, they need to verify that I can be trusted when dealing with vulnerable people and children. So that's another great use case for assured identity. The last one I'd like to share is the case where a person may be representing a company. And we have a second spec document that's in early draft at the moment that is going to be able to communicate not only claims about who a person is, but who they are authorized to represent as well, whether that is a person or a company. So really, there's loads of use cases for this. I'm really keen that developers are aware of it and help their peers and the projects they work on understand that this is a uh, easier way and a more standardized way to solve these problems. Fantastic. So let's hope that uh, the people that do work on those uh, scenarios will uh, take a look at the work. We'll have a link to the implementer spec, and they will participate, bringing what they know about their scenario and 
adopting the mechanism because, of course, network effect and everything. Fantastic. Thanks, Mark, for your time today. No problem. It's been my pleasure. And uh, thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Until next time. The OpenID Foundation is a proud sponsor of the Identity Unlocked podcast. Since its formation in 2007, the Foundation has committed to promoting, protecting, and advancing the OpenID community and technologies. Please consider joining the Foundation and contributing to current working groups. To learn more about the OIDF, please visit www.openid.net. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite app or at identityunlocked.com. Until next time, I'm Vittorio Bertocci, and this is Identity Unlocked. Music for this podcast, composed and performed by Marcelo Wolowski. Identity Unlocked is powered by Of Zero. Copyright 2020, Of Zero Incorporated, all rights reserved.